0: After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, Neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none Can stand before you because of this.
1: Hey, it's great to be with you. My name's Pat. For those who I haven't met, Uh, I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Sea on the Hill, and I'm the only pastor left in the building. Poor Nicholas uh, is at home with COVID, or his family's got COVID, as he mentioned in the video, and our brother Neil, Pastor Neil, is actually up on the Gold Coast. Must be very nice. But it's, uh, we actually have a church plant up there. Uh, if you don't know, Sydney Hill, Melbourne East is part of a movement of churches. And so one of the ways that we bless the other churches is to go up and uh, help one another out by, by preaching at our different uh, congregations around Australia. So Neil is preaching the exact same passage up there. And Kerry, our kids minister's whole family is at home sick as well. So it really is just Matt Condie and I left in the building. So let's hope that we don't, uh, you know, ruin it too much. We're learning about uh, keeping the place pure. But I wanted to, before we get into it, I just want to express also how excited I am to start this two weeks of the Build the City campaign. It is just going to be awesome. We had a lot of fun writing this devotional guide, uh, it's going to be a great time to come before the Lord and listen and wait for what He has to do with us. It would be so stupid for us to kind of start strategically planning and getting ahead of ourselves without first praying and fasting on the Lord. And it's a great week to be starting that because in the, this week and next week we're going to be focusing on prayer, fasting and holiness. So I would really encourage you to get into these devotionals, use them, make it to the times of prayer. It is just my weekly joy to pray with Wayne, Chin Moy and Dean every Tuesday morning. I urge you just to come along just to hear them pray. It is awesome. I urge you and I promise you that they have prayed for each one of you in this room on those Tuesday mornings. It is just a beautiful thing to hear. So I really encourage you to come along to that. But before we get into today's passage, let me pray for us as we come before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to come and sit under your word. We thank you for hard words uh, and easy words, but as we come to this text today, Father, may you change our hearts, may you convict us of our sin, may you show us what we are guilty of, may we reform our lives to come before you, may we know more about Jesus when we leave this building. Father, please change our hard hearts to have affections for what you have affections for. Amen. So some of you may know that one of my favourite hobbies is uh, freediving, spearfishing. So that's when you dive down... Under the ocean, and you swim amongst the coral, you grab a fish, and then you have it for dinner. The name is kind of in the title, spearfishing. And the reason why I got into this when I was about 16, 17 years old is because I used to be a really competitive swimmer. I used to wake up at 5 a.m., swim kilometers in the pool, after school, go back to the pool or go to the ocean, swim kilometers. And then when I was doing this, uh, when I was training, I met this guy at the surf club named Rick Tripp. And now Rick was a, uh, a great spear fisherman and he said, hey, come along and I'll teach you how to do it. And little did I know that he was actually not just a great spear fisherman, he was the world champion spear fisherman. And here he was mentoring me for free. And so this is, this is Rick and his dog Chino, I think is behind me on the screen. Uh, he is one of those like just action hero superstars. He took me from being able to dive three metres underwater to being able to dive 20 metres underwater in one breath hold and then resurface. He's an amazing guy, and I still love spearfishing today, even though I don't have much contact with Rick. But one of the things that he said when we went out for our first dive, he grabbed me by the shoulder, this was the safety briefing. He said, Pat, there is zero error for, like there is zero uh, area for risk when you're spearfishing. If something goes wrong here, it's fatal. Like, this is a dangerous sport, you're underwater. So he grabbed me by the shoulder, and he said... The biggest thing that goes wrong is right here. I said, of course. It's like my heart. If I, if I believe in myself, I should be able to do this. And he said, no, you idiot, it's your lungs. Like, you need to be able to, you need to, be able to hold your breath long enough. And I was like, oh, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And then this, he said, the second most important thing is right here. And he pointed to my head. I said, oh, of course. So no oxygen to the lungs equals no oxygen to the brain, which equals death. He said, yes, but I'm actually talking about your ego. He said, the thing that is going to kill you underwater is your lung capacity and your ego. He didn't tell me anything about sharks. He didn't tell me anything about crocodiles, nothing about jellyfish, nothing about water safety, nothing about if you hit your head on a propeller. All the things that I thought would kill me were external, but all the things that he was warning me about were internal. He actually did warn me a little bit about sharks. He said, Rick, what happens if I see a shark? He said, ah, you just punch it. I was like, OK. <laughs> I luckily haven't seen a shark yet. Uh, but Rick's big point was the things that are going to hurt me are going to be internal. And I'm really glad that he did give me this safety briefing. Because once, at one stage, I was on my way back up to the surface. And I was running out of breath. And I started to see stars. And I started to black out. And then I hit the top of the water. <gasps> had that big gasping moment. I was like, oh man, that was intense. And I smiled and I said to the guys, oh, I just saw stars. I almost blacked out. And they said, you're an idiot. They put you in the boat. I had to sit there for five hours while they kept on fishing. And then they made me sit on dry land for two weeks. They took this so seriously because they understood that if I was going to push myself like that, I was a threat to myself. You see, A couple of weeks ago, Ben Hewitt came and preached to us, and throughout the book of Ezra, we've heard about all of these external threats to Israel. Israel are under immense opposition. People don't want them to be rebuilding the temple. They don't want them to be rebuilding the walls. But in today's passage, we actually see that the biggest threat to Israel is from within. The biggest thing that is going to happen to them is from within. So let's get into the marriage mess as we read from Ezra 9, verses 1 to 4. After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land." And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and my beard. I sat appalled. Then all who who trembled at the word of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice." Now, last week, Nick introduced us to the man, the myth, the legend, Ezra. He's finally on the scene, the last three chapters of the book, and we have Ezra here. And we saw that he's a man with great favour from God. The hand of God has been upon him. He's come back with a group, a crew from Babylon with a hunger and a passion for God's Word, a hunger and a passion for what he sees in God's Word, what he hears from God, and he wants to reform God's people to be doing this. He's a priest that leads a new generation back into Jerusalem to add to the spiritual depth of the people who are already there. Now, the temple in Jerusalem has already been dedicated some 50 to 60 years beforehand. A whole generation of Israel has been born and raised there up in the Lord. It should be going well. They have the people, they have the land, but God's presence isn't there like it was before and they've been waiting expectantly. So here we have Ezra, he's back in town, he's getting things in order, then he gets a report from, from snitches that the people of Israel, as well as the priests and the Levites, have been intermarrying with the people, those who are in the land, that those who God has specifically told them not to marry. Now, why is this a problem? It might not seem like a big deal to us, in fact, it might not seem to the, like a big deal to the people who are in the context, considering they let it happen. But you see, Exodus and Deuteronomy have told us that God puts forward commandments not to marry those who are already in the land, not to intermarry with those people who are already in the promised land. And the reason why God is doing this, He's trying to set them up for success. It's not because He's just racist for the sake of being racist. He's trying to set them up for success in worshipping Him. God understands that promiscuity with the people of the land is going to mean promiscuity with their gods. This is one of those classic Bible texts that you really have to have your biblical uh, goggles on in the context of the whole Bible to truly understand what it's saying. Because the problem is not necessarily the marriages. The problem is not the marriages. God is very for marriage. He's very for marriage, staying together... But the problem is against, that God has is false God worship, faithlessness to Him. And that's exactly what these marriages are leading to. They're leading to false worship of other gods. See, God's people have been faithless in uniting themselves by marriage to people of other nations. They have entered back into the land, and rather than obeying God's commandment and keeping themselves separate from the other people and marrying within their own community, they have done exactly what God has told them not to and married outside it. As I said, it's not about racial differences, it's not about social differences, it's not about class differences, it's not a poor person marrying a rich person. It, rather, it's about spiritual differences. It's about heart differences, it's about core differences, it's fundamental differences... God didn't want them to intermarry with those other nations because those other nations worshipped false gods. And the first commandment of God was what? You shall have no other gods before me. By, risking, by tying their lives together with those who worshipped other gods, they were risking relationship with God. They were risking the first and most important commandment. You shall have no other God but me. Because when two people unite their lives together in marriage, they start raising kids together, they live under the same roof, they worship together, they, they are one flesh, they put everything together. Genesis calls marriage united in one flesh. That's how intimately you get together with the other person in marriage. So the command from God not to marry outside the faith was all about faithlessness. God wanted His people to stay faithful to Him. And one of the ways to help that was to marry someone within the same faith so they know the deepest part of who you are. It was to protect his people from being drawn away to other gods of the land in, as they united themselves to one another in these incredibly intimate ways. And we saw in our series on Kings a couple of months ago and he, a, a Example of this happening to one of the kings. King Solomon started off his life on such a high note. A man after God his own heart, just like his father David. But he was slowly led astray by the gods of his many wives as he united his life to people and united his life to their God. See, this wasn't about not marrying people for the sake of it. This was about true heart transformation. This was about putting faith and trust in the good plan that God has for them rather than going after the lusts and the desires of their own hearts. So this intermarriage mess seems very distant and distinct from us, but it might be more relative, uh, relevant to us than we originally think. See, there's a huge temptation for Christians to marry non-believers, isn't there? Sometimes it's harder, uh, easier for you to find a spouse on the outside of the church as opposed to on the inside. But Paul has said he's encouraged us to marry within the Lord. He's encouraged people in this room, in Corinthians, to marry within the Lord. Why? Because we're more impressionable than we actually think. Innocently attaching our heart to the heart of another that doesn't submit to the Lord or love Jesus, we're most likely going to be the ones who are influenced. Staying single is actually really faithful to God sometimes. And in our sexually modernised world, singleness and celibacy can be seen and treated like the ultimate tragedy. Hollywood likes to portray singleness as a failure in life. Movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin can kind of depict life, if you haven't had sex, as a life of ultimate failure. The apparent tragedy that this portrays is actually a huge life on the Christian life. Because in reality, singleness and celibacy as a Christian, given the ease of hookup culture that we live in, is a sign of faithfulness. It bears witness to Jesus being enough in your life. It's an amazing thing. And we like to think, we like to hope that the flirt-to-convert option will work out for us. But more often than not, our lives end up being dragged away, we end up being dragged away, or we end up incredibly lonely in marriage, as the person who we unite our life to doesn't know the core of us, doesn't know the deepest, most inner being of us. See, those who compromise on this show faithlessness, just like the Israelites did. It tells the world where your heart and where your allegiance actually lie. It shows that your allegiance lies with your new spouse, who you're choosing to pursue, as opposed to your allegiance to Jesus. Because like the Israelites, church, we are called not to intermarry. Not based on race, marry whatever race you want, it's a beautiful thing. But based on faith, get the core right. However, at the same time, Paul understands that the gospel is powerful, and it's going to go out into the world, and it's going to save people at different rates of knots. Some people will be saved and they'll already be in a non-Christian marriage. So you have a Christian who ends up with a non-Christian partner. And Paul encourages us, if the non-Christian partner's up for it, stay within that marriage, if they'll have you. Because by your change of heart, by your witness, you may win that person to Jesus. Church, if this is you, if you're being tempted to look outside the walls of the church to find a husband or a wife, I plead with you, stay faithful to Jesus. Worldly marriage will last 40 years if you're really, really lucky. Don't roll the dice on your life with Jesus for that. Keep trusting Him. And I'm so aware, I'm very, very aware that this isn't my lived experience. I have a wife, I have kids, and I really love them, and I know that some of the people I'm speaking to right now, all you want is that. But keep trusting Jesus. I'm aware that at times you may feel so lonely... You may feel so frustrated. You may feel so misunderstood, especially from people behind the pulpit. I'm sure you've been told by many times that your singleness is a gift. I'm sure at times it just doesn't feel like it. I assure you that the married people in the room also have the same feeling as you have towards your singleness, towards their marriage sometimes also. Marriage is hard. The insane rates of divorce that we see point to that. You see, marriage doesn't fulfill you or satisfy you. Being single doesn't fulfill you or satisfy you. The only thing that fulfills you and satisfies you is Jesus. Church, we need to stop looking for things outside of the world for our hope, our love, our trust, our identity, and we need to find those things in Jesus. See, the amazing thing is, about you right now is that you could easily change whatever status you have today. There are apps on your phone that allow you to meet up and physically get intimate with someone right here, right now, tomorrow. There, you could easily wake up tomorrow morning and decide to leave your family and file for a, paper, a, a, a divorce. It is an easy thing to do. And the fact that you don't, especially in this culture that we live in, shows incredible, incredible faithfulness. It is amazing. It's the exact opposite of what the Jews are showing here. See, God's people are supposed to remain faithful and hold fast to His commandments. The Israelites didn't do this and they took foreign wives for whatever reason. We're not even given it a reason. But let us not make the same mistake in arrogance that we know better than our God. Let us not look for partners outside of the church. This is the marriage mess that Ezra is finding himself in the situation with his people. But we're going to look at his response. We're going to look at guilt and grace. So read with me from verse 5 to 9. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. For the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment of favour... But now, for a brief moment, favour has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place. God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So what's interesting about this part is that Ezra himself hasn't intermarried, but he includes himself and all the people of Israel in his confession of sin. You notice that he uses the term we a lot. We have sinned. And we'll actually see later on that it's actually a very relatively small amount of people who have sinned. Ezra counts himself as fault, which is so different to our culture of sin. Guilt is to be called out in the lives of other people, but hidden in your own life. We have logs in our own eyes, but we love to point out the specks in other people's, don't we? But in humility and understanding, Ezra puts himself in the guilty fold... See, Ezra's prayer is an, is an encouraging example of confession and repentance, confession of what we are all guilty of in front of the Lord and then turning to, to God in repentance to seek to not make the same mistake again. This is truly a gift from God to Ezra. Ezra understands that if his people are going to walk in the way of the Lord and be a nation pleasing to him, then they are going to have to cast away their sin. They're going to have to do hard work to go digging to separate themselves from the thing that is separating them from God. Because you see, confession isn't telling God something He doesn't already know. Confession is letting God know that you know what is separating you from Him, that you know what is driving a wedge between you and Him. There was nothing about this situation that God didn't know. He was like, what? other wives? Not at all. There is nothing about your life or the lives of these people that God doesn't know. There is zero point, absolutely zero point, hiding sin from God. Confession to God actually offers amazing freedom in repentance because it offers us the opportunity to lift the burden of our muck off our shoulders and onto the shoulders of the one who can actually do something about it. Church, how do you go with confession and repentance? Do you know the power in it? Do you know the freedom in confession and repentance? Or when you're praying, are there some things, some thoughts, some deeds that you don't even go there? You don't even let God go there. When you're praying, you just switch off and you don't name them because it's going to bring you so much shame. Church, there is so much freedom in understanding that you can confess before God. That you, in fact, are guilty. That you, in fact, fall short of your own standards, let alone God's standards. When we hide our sin from God, we don't fool God. We merely fool ourselves. See, your relationship with God is more likely to be destroyed by you than any external force. We do a lot of worrying about external forces and our faith. But the reality is that most likely, it's you There is this groundbreaking theological movie from around 2010 called The Muppet Movie. Uh, In The Muppet Movie, the Muppets, led by Kermit, they're doing a European world tour. It's super funny. Uh, If you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it. And uh, Kermit, he runs a pretty tight ship. They're kind of going around and they're they're playing to a a bunch of different um, countries and they're in Russia at one stage. And Kermit is kidnapped by evil Kermit. I think Evil Kermit might be on the screen. And one of the funny things is, is that the only thing that separates Kermit from Evil Kermit is what? One tiny freckle. And so Evil Kermit frames Good Kermit by putting a freckle on him and covering up his own. It is the funniest stitch-up ever. And so Good Kermit ends up in a Russian gulag, a Russian prison, for a long time, where Evil Kermit takes Kermit's band and... Leads them in debauchery. They party, they don't practice, they just get wild and they love life. I won't spoil the middle, but fast forward to the end. Good Kermit rescues the day, confronts evil Kermit and is standing in front, of his, uh, in front of all the other Muppets at the end of the movie and he's saying, guys, didn't you know it was me? And here's the theological bombshell that they drop. They say this, well, I think we really did know it wasn't you but evil Kermit just let us do whatever we wanted and we're having so much fun that none of us stopped to think about it. See, I love this moment because it reveals the foolishness in the Muppet's hearts. When we are wandering away from God, leading into sin, leaning into sin, and enjoying it, we are being foolish, utterly foolish. See, the book of Titus says, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by one another and hating another. See, the people of Israel are guilty, they've stuffed up. They don't say, we didn't know. They didn't say, it's because of X, Y, Z, it's because of him or her. There's no excuse, there's just confession. The people are guilty of sin. Israel were meant to be God's people in God's land with God's blessing, but they weren't. And here we get an amazing and beautiful and gorgeous glimpse of the grace of God. The people's guilt is met head on by the grace of God. In verse 9, underline this one, highlight it, go crazy with it. For we ourselves... For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love. We are slaves, but we have not been forsaken. We are guilty, but we have not been found guilty. We don't deserve love, but we have been loved. Doesn't that sound familiar? You see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Israel were on a course to wreck themselves, and it was from within, it wasn't from the outside. There were external threats that they had, absolutely. They needed to build with one hand on a sword at times because the oppression was getting so bad. But this passage shows us that the biggest threat to them came from within, just like you and me. You see, you may have made a mess of your life in a huge way. You may have massively stuffed up. Think about how big of these examples, how big this stuff up is. They have literally married and had kids with people who God has explicitly told them not to have kids with. But know that even though you're fully guilty, and you are fully guilty, God has not forsaken you. God has not left you in your muck. In fact, He's allowed you to see your muck for what it is. He's come down to earth, and He hasn't just sat in the muck with you. He's sat in the muck for you. God wants your faithfulness. He doesn't want you to be rebellious to His Word, but the response here isn't to fall into being religious and box ticking. The point is to be repentant. Because none of us can stand before God because of the guilt with which we had. This is a hard word to hear. You are not innocent. Friends, there is absolutely nothing that you or I could do to appease the wrath of God, even if we wanted to. We bring nothing to our salvation except the the sin that makes it necessary, says Spurgeon. Therefore, what hope do we have? What hope do we have in front of God? The only hope that we have in front of God is grace. The incredible grace that is Jesus. Gavin Ortland, a great author, says this, when we cover our sin, God in His grace uncovers them. And when we uncover our sin, God covers it. See, Jesus is the only thing, the only thing in the entire universe that stands in between you and the wrath of God. In Ezra chapter 10, Ezra finishes praying and all the people gather to him. They admit their guilt and the guilt of those among them. It's a really harrowing scene. The people around him are mourning over the other people's sins. So they enact a plan of repentance, trying their best to right the wrongs of the things that have done. They stand in the bitter, cold rain for months. There's 30,000 of them. They stand there for months and they try to figure out who has married the wrong people. And then they enact this radical plan of divorce to separate themselves from those who are going to lead them to other gods. Those who have decided not to renounce their other gods. And they come up with 111 relationships that are named. 111 out of 30,000. It's not actually that many. But we're to see that the most important thing about this chapter is that Ezra and the people need to take their sin no matter how small, seriously. So Ezra and the people, they begin the hard work of separating themselves. Could you imagine how horrible this would have been? You see, when we're convicted by our sin, it's painful, it's confronting. We should weep and we should mourn over the fact that we've done it and then we're in it. You see, sometimes when you're sick, you need to go into for surgery, deliberately cutting in and making fresh wounds to remove the thing that's making you sick but we can't do this surgery on ourselves. You need a healer to work on you. You need a surgeon to work on you. You need someone else to get into your body and get blood on their hands. It's not pleasant. So what is the thing in your life that's making you sick? What is the thing that you need work on? Where are you compromising in small but perhaps significant ways? How are you going at work? Are you cutting corners? Are you ripping people off? Are you compromising your morals for appeasement of your boss? Or what about your relationships? Are you being faithful? Are you loving those around you well? Or are you using and abusing those in your life for your selfish gain? Or how about your devotion on the Lord? Is God for you a genie in the bottle that you come and meet on Sunday mornings but ignore for the other six days of the week? Are you giving him the best part of your life? If any of these things ring true to you, God's grace is real for you. You can confess, you can repent, you can walk in newness of life. See, the thing that is going to set us free isn't ourselves, it's the act of another. You see, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. And I know we say that every week. We always say, Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you should have died. But really think about that. Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. And he died the death that you should have died. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die in this happy, surrounded by friends and family. He died pinned out on a cross in absolute agony. And why? Why did Jesus die? Jesus died because God loves you. He loves you so much. God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever may believe in him may have, shall not perish but have eternal life. Church, God loves you. That's why Jesus died. God gave himself for you. God wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants you to find your identity and your happiness in Him. He wants an active relationship with you. He wants you to take your burdens and put them on His shoulders. Come to Him today with all of your heart, church. Come to Jesus and feel His warm embrace. As He adores you, not because of what you've done, but despite what you've done. He loves your innermost heart. See, we're going on this rebuilding campaign, right? How stupid would it be of us to put the cart before the horse? How stupid it would it be of us to come up with our own ideas before first posturing ourselves in a, in a heart of repentance and confession before God? Our first step in this process is confessing and repenting, receiving God's grace, trying not to hide from God, but giving Him everything and talking to him about it and letting us letting him help us with it so in a moment i'm going to pray a core prepare for us all but i really want to take you to take the time i'm going to leave a minute of silence and you can take the time to just confess before god bring it all to the surface before him do it in the quietness of your hearts so your neighbor's not like whoa but make sure you do it and do it really do it okay Let's bring our mess before God and then I'm going to pray for us all, okay? Come to Jesus with your mess. Heavenly Father, sometimes coming before you feels so yuck. Sometimes when we bring our guilt and our shame and our burdens before you, we feel disgusting. But Father, we thank you so much for the forgiveness that the cross offers. Lord, I have failed you in thought, in word, and indeed this week. Father, our church has failed you in thought, in word, indeed this week. We have all failed you this week. We are meant to be your people, but so often we fall short of representing you in this community. Lord, making us a new heart, oh God, may we be on fire for you. Thank you for the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work that you have done through him. Uh, Through him for us. Lord, we pray that you make us new today. As we seek to build this city, Father, may you make us new today. Father, as we confess our guilt and our burdens and our mess to you, may you assure us of your never ending, never stopping, never giving up, unshakable love. Father, we praise you that we can come before you like this, that we don't have to sit in our mess. we are able to bring it before you, knowing that you have dealt with it. Father, change us. Don't let us keep on making the same mistakes. Change us. Father, we are just so honoured to be called your people in Melbourne's East. Please help us lean into that identity and run away from the identity that the world offers us. Create in us a new heart, O Lord. And all of God's people said, amen.